We asked our guest on this week's Cityscape what song inspires her the most, and this is the one that first came to mind. I am woman, hear me roar, in numbers too big to ignore, and I know too much to go back and pretend. I'm George Boldarki. Our guest on this episode of Cityscape is Nellie Galan. You might remember her from Celebrity Apprentice with Donald Trump. She was on the show back in 2008. But Nellie is defined by so much more than her appearance on a reality TV show. Nellie was the first Latina president of the U.S. television network, Telemundo. She went on to run her own independent production company, Galan Entertainment, and she's produced over 700 episodes of television in English and Spanish. The New York Times Magazine has called Nellie the tropical tycoon. She was born in Cuba. Nellie's parents moved to the United States when she was just a little girl. Nellie is now on a mission to help other women and and men, for that matter, become successful entrepreneurs. She's out with a new book called Self Made Becoming Empowered, Self Reliant, and Rich in Every Way. Nellie, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. So let's start off with this question How do you define success? I think I define success as becoming self made, but I define self made as being rich in every way. <laughs> because I think. For a woman, and particularly a Latina, which I am, you know, money alone would not cut it for me. It would not make me happy. I say it's important to be rich in love, rich in family, rich in abundance as well. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Rich in spirituality. It's it's the whole package. But the reason self-made is so important to me is because without that pursuit of being financially self-reliant first, all else can't be. Uh, while you're still waiting for someone to save you, while you're still thinking that uh, you are reliant on other people or other things to make you happy or to make you whole fiscally and otherwise, you're not living a rich life in every way. Speaking of waiting for someone to save you, you say in this book to kill <laughs> Prince Charming. Yes. I, I believe that if um, becoming self-made is a race, the starting line of the race is you have to kill Prince Charming. And and I say it in a very metaphorical way because I don't just mean that there's no Prince Charming as a mate for a man or a woman, right? I think it's this idea that we that whether we consciously know it or not, we're thinking that our boss might save us, that the corporation we work for, um, you know, I remember working for all these sexy companies and thinking, I'm so-and-so from that company. But the day you leave, somebody else replaces you and they're just as important as you were. And now you're not so important anymore. So to fall in love with that is a mistake. To fall in love with your, you know, your 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 president of the United States and think the government's going to save you or think that the government owes you anything is a mistake. So I think the starting line is you have to kill Prince Charming. You have to know that empowerment, which is such a cliched term, really begins when you take responsibility for your life completely. And that means also financially. A lot of people work really, really hard to land that perfect job in the perfect company, Google, Apple. Yeah. What do you think of that path to success for these individuals? I think, look, in every generation, there is a version of that. In my generation, it was television, right? Uh, Television was an emerging field. Now, the digital world is the emerging field. 
among others. I can tell you from having lived that and, and wanting those things, wanting to be the president of a network, which I was. Telemundo. Uh, wanting to work for HBO and Fox and all these people. That when you're in those jobs, uh, people send you flowers, they invite you to everything. And the day you leave, I say in the book, it's like you're royalty and you now uh, divorce the other royal and you are like shunned from the kingdom, you know. Uh, I think that those are great opportunities and great ways to think like an entrepreneur within a company to learn, in order to learn. But to make that your your savior is a mistake. And I, I am of the school that um, the big thing that I, the big aha that I had in my life is one of my bosses says, young lady, you've got to... You, you've got to make money while you sleep. And I was like, what is, I mean, that's Chinese. What are you saying to me? And what he was saying, rightfully so, and I think that is the key to the whole puzzle, is that if you make money and you save money, it's not going to take you to the end of your life. That in fact, you have to make money, save money, invest that money in some entrepreneurial way. You invested in real estate. I, I invested in real estate. That's not the only way to do it. You can invest in stock. You can invest in buying another, you know, buying a business and putting your relatives to work in it, into a franchise. There's a multitude of ways which I will get into with you. But the point is that you just can't, your your your, your hours that you work and that you provide a service are not going to cut it. That That is not going to take you to the end of your life. Something else has to make money for you while you sleep. What does it mean, Nellie, to get your own chips? Because I know you live by that saying I do. as well. Well, when I was very young, I was 22 years old, I ran a little independent TV station, which everyone thinks is so glamorous. But, you know, we know that uh, in New Jersey at the time, it was very rinky dinky. There was like four of us. <laughs> uh, and I was everything the cleaning lady, the station manager. And I worked madly passionately in love with you know running a little tv station as you know yeah is really fun business uh-huh. um and so i worked seven days a week like a crazy person and i really feel like it was my mba on the job one day i walked into work three years later at 25 and the lawyer uh from my two owners who were millionaires multi-millionaires at the time one of them is now a billionaire uh told me that they had sold the company and that they were giving me a little chunk of money and they were giving me my company car. And I was horrified because this was my baby. I had actually built the station from scratch. Uh, that's where I learned how to build a, bu- a building first. And um, I ran into New York City and I confronted my one of my bosses. And I said, how could you do this to me? This is my baby. I love that. How could you not tell me I would have bought it? And he was kind of like, what? He's like, young lady, those are my chips. If you want to play, go get your own chips. And I was mad, like, what a jerk. And I went home, and and after I got over being mad, I thought, why don't I go get my own chips? I'm, I'm as smart as he is. Why can't I do what he did? I just did it for him. I built that business. Mm-hmm. And it was like a, the moment that I just thought, in a way that maybe... This guy thought more for me than I thought for myself, in a way. He was doing me a favor. And in hindsight now, I think, you know, he could have been condescending to me. He could have talked to me like I'm a, like I'm a, I was a minority girl. Instead, he challenged me. And I took the challenge. And, and that brings me to another piece of advice that you offer people, and you tell people to choose yourself. Yeah, I do. I think 
I think that when I go and I go around the country and I meet people, they think very small. And women in particular think very small. And our goals are small. And the way we talk about ourselves is small. And so when I ask women, you know, what are you? Oh, I'm, I'm good at, at organizing clothes. And I'm like, so you're a stylist. Well, I don't know that I'd say, yeah, you're a stylist. Well, I'm a really good cook. and I, So what's your dream? I mean, are you a chef or are you a cook? What are you? And I think it's very hard to be chosen if you don't choose yourself first. How can I take you and, you know, think, oh, wow, so you're a chef. Well, maybe I know somebody that's, or maybe as a TV producer, I'm going to try to have you apply for Master Chef. But I'm not going to give any opportunity to somebody who talks about themselves like they're nothing. And I think as a Latina, again, and as a woman of color, I think the way we're raised is, you know, to be humble, that it's kind of bad to talk about yourself or be grandiose. You know, when we look at the CEOs of the Fortune 500s, you know, I can tell you without a doubt, because I've worked with a lot of them, uh, they tell you they're somebody before they are somebody. They declare themselves in a bigger way. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I love about my culture that we're humble, but right now we need to kill that too. You know, I, I was recently on Tavis Smiley's show, and he's a dear friend, and he said, don't you worry that by writing this book that, you know, minority people are going to, you know, get grandiose. And I said, you know what, Tavis, let's deal with that 50 years from now, <laughs> because my culture is so humble that it'll take at least 50 years <laughs> to get out of it. So I'm not going to worry about that right now. Right now I need to get people out of that mindset of like, oh, I can't put myself out there uh, because if I do, and by the way, as a woman, you know, a lot of the women in my community look at me and like, wow, you're really putting yourself out there. And I, I really uh, push back on that because I'm like, so what am I supposed to be less than? Mm -hmm. We should all do that. This is the moment of women and of, of women of color. And that's, I think the real importance of the message of my book is, is to help women realize the stars have aligned it happens very rarely in the history of the world and in the history of we our lifetime. We could soon have a woman president. We are hopefully going to have a woman president. And we have a lot of things going on in the world. And while there's so everyone's talking doom and gloom, there's actually magical, magical things happening. I, that I'm Cuban-American, you know, Cuba, how many times in our lifetime could we have an emerging country? I mean, do, do people realize that? I mean, still, there's communism there. It's going to take another 10 or 15 years, but... How often is there an emerging country that if you just show up, put your bags down, and do anything, you will be rich? That doesn't happen often. Look at all the multi-multi-millionaires that came out of Russia when Russia emerged. Look at China, what's going on with China. Those things are like, wow, that don't happen often in one's lifetime. You were born in Cuba. Your parents moved to New Jersey when you were a little girl. Yeah. And you encourage people to think like an immigrant. Yeah. What does it mean to think like an immigrant? Well, I think everything, if I, if I, people ask me often, what is your, where does your success come from? Because my parents lost everything. I didn't grow up with anything. Um, and I would say my entire success is based on being an immigrant. Uh, and in fact, over 50% of the Fortune 500 CEOs are immigrants. Most entrepreneurs are immigrants in America. I think that leaving a country in turmoil, uh, where the banking system failed, where we came here with nothing, you are very grown up at a very young age. You realize that things are worse in other places. You're grateful for being here. 
You don't see the flaws in the country. You see all the good in the country. You see all the opportunity that other people don't see. And as a family, you're in it together as a team. And I think that's something we've lost, right? You know that, you know, you don't judge your parents. You know that your parents really suffered and that they sacrificed so that you could have every opportunity. And you don't take that for granted one day of your life. What did your parents want for you while you were growing up in New Jersey? You know, my parents, what they wanted is for me to get an education. But I think they also thought small because they had had a shocking, traumatic, almost PTSD experience. So they were almost very, you know, fearful and risk averse. Um, So what they wanted for me is maybe, you know, get married, have a bunch of kids, which in hindsight, maybe I should have had more kids. I now think that uh, kids are very important. But they wanted me to have an education and have a nice job, you know, be a teacher, which in the end, I think they were right about that too. Um, You know, do something, be a nurse, do something where I could raise my kids. And I don't think they remotely thought I was going to do everything I did, and neither did I, to be honest with you. How did you get into television in the first place? Very weird story. I was a sophomore in high school at all-girl Catholic school, um, and I was accused of plagiarism. I wrote a story that was took place in Cuba, and the nun thought that it was a, an Ernest Hemingway story, which now in hindsight, that was a compliment, <laughs> uh, and she suspended me for three days. And when I went to my parents, um, they said, well, just apologize to the nun, you know, because, again, immigrants, one of the downfalls of being an immigrant is that you want to, like, lay low and lay under the radar. You're you're sort of like, we're so happy to be here. We don't want to rock the boat. And I was like, she's wrong. I would never do that. And I was so mad at the nun. And the only way I knew to retaliate was I wrote an article about why you should never send your kids to all-girl Catholic school. <laughs> and I put it in an envelope, and I, my favorite magazine at the time was Seventeen Magazine. I looked at the masthead, saw the address, sent it to the editor-in-chief, sent the article in. My parents were like, what are you doing? And I didn't even explain it. Somebody just sent it. Three days later, the nun asked me to go back to school. She apologized. She said, you know, you, it reminded me of a Ernest Hemingway story, but in fact, your story is very good, and you're getting an A+. The whole thing blew over. Three months later, I get a $100 check in the mail from Seventeen Magazine, and they tell me they're going to publish the story. And I'm like, oh, no! <laughs> they published the story. I went to every news newsstand I could and bought every magazine, got to school that day, and all the girls were like, shh, shh, gossiping about me. And the article wasn't horrible. I mean, in hindsight, it was very cute, funny. It's something that, you know... Um, Tina Fey would have written today, like a Mm -hmm. kind of a sarcastic, funny thing. I got called to the principal's office, the head nun. It's like the worst thing that could happen to you. (laughs) And um, when I went in, she said, I don't like your kind of girl here. And I interpreted that like she was expelling me. And I left very, with like my tail between my legs, right? Get home and tell my parents I got expelled. And my parents go, oh, no, let's go on your hands and knees. You have to apologize. (laughs) And again, I mean, I think this is a theme in my life. Uh, I got mad. I'm like, how dare that nun expel me, you know? My parents, one of the things they always taught me is that we came here for freedom of speech Mm -hmm. from a communist regime. I called the Board of Ed of the state of New Jersey and an African-American guy answered the phone. And I said, 
I just got expelled. I tell him the whole story, and he's like, well, technically they can get away with it because it's a private school. He's like, but why don't I introduce you to a reporter at the at your local newspaper? Why don't you tell him your story? And, you know, the, I say that if it had been today, I would have been Malala. But uh, it came out in the paper. Cuban girl gets expelled for First Amendment issue. Huh. And uh, the nuns called my family in. And that was the worst car ride of my life with my parents who barely spoke English, ashamed of me. Uh, we go in and see the head nun, and she goes, I never said that I was expelling you. I just said I didn't like what you did. And uh, in fact, you're such a great student, and we like you so much. We're going to graduate you early. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I got a call from Seventeen Magazine, and they said, in fact, we'd like to offer you the youngest guest editorship in the history of the magazine. Wow. It was a guest editorship that always went to juniors in college, and I got it as a junior in high school. And so I went to work at Seventeen Magazine, kept writing articles for them, was like this young editor, and they loved me there. I was their audience, right? And this Latina, who was the only Latina producer at the time out of the Austin PBS station, Mm -hmm. who had done a a show called Carras Colendas, which was the first bilingual kids show, and then she had gotten funded by PBS to do the teenage version of 60 Minutes. Saw my name in Seventeen Magazine, was looking for teenagers. And she said, I'm coming to New York and I'd like to interview you to be a researcher on our show. She assumed I was a college intern. Mm -hmm. And she came and met me and she offered me a job in Austin, Texas as a researcher. And I went home and told my parents I was 17 years old. And I said, I'm moving to Texas. And my mother goes, no, you are not leaving. You are not 18. You cannot leave. And I said, I, this, I know this is the greatest opportunity of my life. I would have never thought television. And it's a Latina woman. And she said, you can, I will never forgive you if you leave. And the day I left, I took my little Chevy Chevette. My mother was bawling. And I say it was the first selfish big act of my life. Mm-hmm. Because as a Latina, you don't do that. You don't leave your parents. And I always say, and my mother always says, what would have happened to all of us if I had not left? My parents have had an incredible retirement. I've had a career that I could have never imagined. Uh, I've made money that I could have never imagined. And all because I left home, drove cross country, took a risk, went through my fears, all the limiting beliefs that I was raised with, and I did it. Do you think, Nellie, that's the biggest obstacle to success Fear, the F word. Yes. You know, today I was asked that question with a, a group of Latinos. They said, well, how are you so fearless? And I said, I am fearful every day of my life. Fear does not go away. And I don't know anyone. I've worked with seven billionaires. They're all free, fearful. What I realize and what I, the meditation I go through when fear shows up, and it shows up every day, is I think of myself in an airplane and there's a cloud outside and we're going through turbulence and it happens all the time and I just breathe and then we pass the cloud and that's how I visualize it in my mind it's like fear shows up and when it shows up I honor it I, 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 I acknowledge it but I say I just have to get through it I have to go right through it and in fact whatever I'm afraid of I have to do you know writing this book was very scary for me very 
And it's turned out to be way harder and way more excruciatingly difficult than I thought. In what way? Well, in, in every way. I mean, we all get comfortable in a comfort zone. I was comfortable in TV. I'm comfortable making TV shows. I'm comfortable running a network. I'm co- you decide to write a book. You don't realize, you know, your writing skills are, are different in television, right? I had to relearn to write. I also had to, you know, I had a lot of material and a lot of stories. I had to almost like, it's almost like vomiting your whole life out first. Mm-hmm. And that's very painful. And it's painful to relive Every experience of your life, it's kind of, it's made me a crybaby. Like I say, I'm such a tough girl. Um, it's its made me go back to my feminine in a way um, and really relive every single experience of my life, even if they didn't make the book. I had to go through them again. Speaking of pain, you tell people in your pain is your brand. Yes. I think that when... I went to psychology school, which, you know, I, I went back to school later in life. Yeah, we should say you achieved all of your success. You became the first Latina television executive in the United States, sans a college degree. Yeah, I, I did everything without, I say, I, I've run a lot of businesses without an MBA, without a college degree, but, I, but I'm a very studious person. So along the way, I hired tutors, I hired coaches, I went to therapy. I mean, I'm one of those people that knows I know nothing. So I am I'm an eternal student. Um, and my dream was to get a doctorate in psychology. So when I finally made money in 2008 and the economy crashed, I had made enough money. I had invested in real estate that I decided I'm going to do my bucket list. And I don't like to use the word retirement because I'll never retire. It's not retirement. What money buys you is freedom. To finally follow your bliss. So I went back to school. I did I did a detour in the, in the story, but went back to school. And when you go to psychology school, you have to unravel yourself first. And I realized that I still had these resentments and issues about things that had happened to me. And in that process of unraveling myself, I realized if, I, if those things had not happened to me, I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't, wouldn't have made all the money I made. I wouldn't have had the chutzpah that I had. I wouldn't have, none of it. I wouldn't be me. And in, in now doing this work and writing this book, I've met a lot of women, over 150,000 women in four years that I've met around the country. And they all say to me, well, I can't do what you did, but you don't know what happened to me. And I say, well, you can't tell me a single thing that I haven't heard. And I know for a fact that in your pain is your brand. And that instead of running away from your pain, if you understand that that pain entered your life to make you an expert at it and to find the hole in it, what did you need that you didn't get? And what can you provide? What service? What item? What experience? In my case, I've made a lot of TV shows about my bad experiences. And I, you find a community within that that shares your pain. And when you do that work, I feel that it's tr- not only do you make money, not only do you turn pain into profit, the work becomes transcendent. So it's actually the reason why it all happened to you. And I really believe when you go into that pain is when you find your mission. You also tell people that they should really capitalize on what makes them unique. For instance, you speak Spanish. Oh, my God. I tell everybody. And I tell my son. Two languages, double the money. Three languages, 
triple the money. If you have any asset that in any way anyone makes you feel that it's a negative, they're crazy. Because to make it in a world with so much noise, you have to tap into all your unique qualities, whether that's that you horseback ride, that you are handicapped, that you are blind. All those things are positives. All those things make you make more money, not less. They make you better at everything you do. You are an expert. And when you're making money, your motto is don't buy shoes. By buildings. buildings. (laughs) (laughs) And I say that both as a literal thing, because in my case, um, you know, one of my bosses said to me, when I was your age, I made money. All you kids buy bling. You buy big houses and jewelry. And he's like, when you make money, live beneath your means and buy real estate, become a landlord. That's how you make money while you sleep. You want passive income. Passive income. Mm -hmm. Now, in my book, I talk about all the different ways to become self-made, you know, There's many ways to do it. It's not just real estate. It just so happens I like real estate. But, you know, I say that now in the social media age, through the shared economy, you can begin one hour a week selling clothes out of your closet, looking at your home and everything in your home as a retail store with unsold inventory. You can drive your car. Uh, You know, this summer I've had so much fun uh, driving, going in lifts with a lot of teachers and in the summer are making money to start businesses. Mm -hmm. You can buy a franchise. People forget that franchises are a great way to start a family-owned business. Uh, put your money into it and then get your whole family to help you run it, right? And it doesn't just have to be food uh, because, you know, some, everybody says to me, it's so expensive to get into franchises. Not true. Yes, franchises that are now McDonald's, yes. But actually the number one fran- up, up-and-coming franchises in America happen to be tutoring for kids, happen to be yoga. There's so many other kinds of franchises. It's a way to invest in something that makes money while you sleep. There's also, right on your block, looking at people in your block that are elderly, that have businesses, that maybe their kids don't want to run their businesses and that might want to sell you their business. It's easier than starting from scratch. Everything doesn't have to be climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. So in the book, I detail all these different ways to make passive income and to become self-made. And the secret sauce is finding hidden money, and you talk about that. You're in the so book good. As you well. really read the book. I'm so <laughs> proud of you. Um, yes, I think the big aha for me in going back to school and writing my dissertation about women and entrepreneurship, in really doing this work, is that I was shocked to find out, even for myself, that there are more opportunities and more money out there than there are jobs, and. That, in fact, um, these opportunities are earmarked specifically for the number one consumers in America and the number one voters who happen to be women and predominantly women of color. And that these women don't even apply for this money. So the hidden money is situated in a golden triangle. And that triangle is constituted by government, corporations, and nonprofits. So in government... It's at the Small Business Administration, at the Department of Commerce. There is money to buy the building of your business, which sometimes the buildings are worth more than the business itself. There's money, startup money. There's money to to be able to um, buy and sell around the world, special chunks of money just for that. Only 5% of the money that's available in the government is applied for. 
in corporations. Corporations, people don't realize, don't want to have so many heads. So they outsource a huge percentage of their business to entrepreneurs. And particularly at the top of the list, women and minority women-owned companies. It's called supplier diversity programs. I mean, anything you can do from being an interior decorator to to making videos. A lot of people in the TV industry, when they no longer can work at the networks, so much money. Uh, Money to do events. Money to do to print. I mean, you name it. It's outsourced. We don't apply for those contracts. A lot of women, when I ask them, they go, well, we don't know about it. And on top of that, I don't want to fill out all that paperwork. Hmm. That's what nonprofits are for. There's a zillion nonprofits in America that do the paperwork for you, that train you for free. So what's a better way to incubate a business than with a grant instead of going and finding venture capital that you have to give away a piece of your business? Nellie, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for all your beautiful questions and for really paying attention to the book. You really got it. Thank you so much. Thank you. A pleasure to be with you. Nellie Galan is an entrepreneur, TV producer, and real estate mogul. Her book is called Self-Made, Becoming Empowered, Self-Reliant, and Rich in Every Way. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.